This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. In the November election, Massachusetts voters will be giving two ballot questions. Question number two is regarding ranked choice voting. A yes on ballot question two supports enacting ranked choice voting for primary and general elections for state executive officials, state legislators, federal congressional and Senate seats, and certain county offices beginning in 2022. Supporters of change to our current system contend that ranked choice or the ability to vote for many candidates with a ranked preference will capture a broader voter sentiment and deliver more democratic outcomes. Opponents contend that the current system properly deems the candidate with the most votes the winner. What is the case for ranked choice voting and how might it change the outcomes of elections in Massachusetts? My guest today is attorney Lee Goodman. In 2013, President Barack Obama, with the unanimous consent of the Senate, appointed attorney Goodman as commissioner of the Federal Election Commission, where he served until 2018. Now an attorney at the law firm Wiley, he is recognized as a national expert in close elections, recounts, and election administration. Attorney Goodman and I will discuss the mechanics of ranked choice voting and the promised benefits to elections and the electorate if Massachusetts approved ballot question two. When I return, I'll be joined by former FEC Commissioner Lee Goodman. Welcome back to Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. I'm now joined by Lee Goodman, former commissioner of the Federal Election Commission. Welcome to the show, Lee. Well, thank you, Joe. It's good to be here with you in Boston. Thank you for being here. Now, for the benefit of our listeners who don't make a career of studying elections, please spell out what, uh, and please, in simple terms, what is ranked choice voting? Um, Most people are familiar, Joe, with uh, seeing a ballot with uh, two, three, or four candidates. You cast your preference among them, and the person who gets the most votes wins the election. Now, sometimes that means a person wins with 45 or 48% of the vote. We call that first past the post. In ranked choice voting, you get a ballot with three, four, sometimes as many as 10 candidates, and uh, you uh, vote your first choice, and then in the next column, you rank your second choice, then your third choice, then your fourth choice. And if the individual uh, that you voted for in your first or second choice isn't still standing in the election as the votes are counted, when no candidate gets over 50% of the vote on the first count, then you just keep counting, dropping candidates, and then counting the voters' second, third, or fourth choices uh, as the ballot counting proceeds through rounds. Ultimately, your goal is to get uh, to narrow the field to two candidates and uh, declare the winner the person who ends up with 50.1% or more of the remaining ballots in that process. So the person who got the fewest votes is, in a sense, in the electronic rerun, their vote, they are taken off the, the choices and their voter, those people who voted for them, their second 
choice is then given that vote and we see if we, anybody got. Yeah, they call it redistributing the second choice. And so if you have, let's take a real simple one, three candidates, Smith, Jones, and Anderson. Okay. And let's simplify it even further for people. Let's say Smith is the Republican, Jones is the Democrat, and Anderson is a independent or third party candidate. Um, when you count everyone's first choice, let's say that uh, Smith gets 45% of the vote and Jones gets 45% of the vote and Anderson gets 10% of the vote. What you do now is you drop Anderson from the ballot and then you redistribute the second choice preferences on the Anderson ballots to Smith and Jones. And you then get to a 50.1 or greater percent winner. Now, that's the easy example. The harder examples, Joe, are where you have 10 candidates in the race and you go through 10 rounds of dropping candidates one by one and redistributing their second, or in some cases, their third or fourth choices among the remaining candidates until you narrow the field to two and uh, someone gets 50.1%, not of all the voters who started this process, but of the remaining ballots in the process. Because if at some point you do not express a preference and your candidate is dropped out, then your ballot is also dropped out of the electorate. I see. Now, this is uh, this seems like a new concept, but actually, in reading about it, it's been with us quite some time. It happens to be on our ballot uh, in November. It's ballot question number two. Um, what's the origin of this idea, and why do you think it would be a choice for us today? Well, the the logical and mathematical process of ranked choices, um, whether it's in elections or any other uh, selection of from a field of multiple items to choose from. It goes back to um, a math development in the 1800s, and it's been the, uh, applied in the democratic election context in Australia uh, since the early 20th century, and uh, several cities uh, in the United States have used it over the last 100 years. Cambridge has used it for a number of years. Some localities in Michigan used, started using it in the 1970s. So it's it's not new, but there is a new initiative uh, to expand it uh, to more jurisdictions, uh, and the proponents of it have various arguments that they make for why it's the newest, best way to elect candidates in our democracy. Well, then let's let's go uh, deeper on that. What what are those benefits that the advocates suggest uh, ranked choice voting will bring? Well, I think. Um, the first and probably uh, most prominent uh, justification for it by those who believe in it is that it uh, makes for majoritarian elections, that the ultimate winner is one with an absolute, has won with an absolute majority of the vote. Uh, we can discuss the pros and cons of that analysis and, and how that actually uh, plays out. Uh, another uh, uh, virtue that it has that uh, uh, I think is undeniable is it does give voters greater choice uh, to vote their uh, to vote for a third party or independent candidate who might not stand a great chance of winning, um, uh, and then yet not to lose their vote in a second or third or fourth round of vote counting. So it, it can enhance 
voter choice, at least for some candidates, doesn't necessarily enhance choice for majority uh, party candidates who tend to be the top two candidates because you're going to stick with your first round vote. If you start with someone who is still standing, your vote stays with that person throughout the vote count. You don't get the opportunity to vote a second or third choice in that scenario. Um, and then there are a number of sort of what we'll call sort of good policy or pro-democratic effects that the proponents advance. They say that it moderates politics. It forces major party candidates to play a little nicer and to compete harder to be people's second choices. Um, they claim that it may reduce negativity in elections. They claim that it uh, would eliminate uh, spoiler candidates. Uh, um, you know, third party candidates, like a Green Party candidate who, who drains votes, perhaps from a Democratic candidate or a Libertarian candidate who might drain votes from a Republican candidate. Um, they, uh, there are, in the literature, there are some claims that it can increase turnout because it increases the number of independent and third party uh, candidates in the race, and therefore it uh, presumably would encourage more voter participation among their base of support. Um, and uh, those are the major um, benefits and virtues of the system that the proponents advance. Okay. Are any of those claims measured? Have, have, have um, when we look back at, you, you mentioned Australia has been at this for a, a century. Um, Cambridge uh, does it. Uh, does it seem to have the salutary effects that uh, the advocates uh, promise? I think they're mixed. I think the political science uh, shows equivocal results on, on most of these scores. Um, let me uh, start uh, with, since we said Australia, you know, one of the benefits they say is that it uh, encourages participation and electoral success of uh, third parties, for example. Um, you don't necessarily see that actually happening uh, in Australia. You still see uh, the two parties, the major two parties, still controlling the vast majority of elections in Australia. Uh, what you do, uh, you do enhance the significance of third-party candidates and uh, independent, often single-issue candidates, because all of a sudden the major parties have to take them seriously, right? Because you want to compete to be their second choices. Uh, and so they do get a leg up uh, in the debate and in leveraging their policy positions into the election. But let's go back to the majoritarian objective. Um, this is a mixed bag. Uh, and I would say uh, on the one hand, you get um, a modicum of greater majoritarian support uh, for the ultimate winner of the election. But that, uh, that argument only goes so far because you have to redefine what majority means in the ranked choice voting context. First, as I t said earlier, as vote counting goes on and as the vote counting rounds move forward, uh, ranked choice voting, and the statistics show this, suffer a significant um, what we call exhausted ballot problem, where people don't mark all their columns. And so a significant number of voters, we've seen it between three and 20%, depending on the locality and the circumstances of each election, 
but we see a significant number of voters who drop out of the electorate in each round. So talk about an Oakland, uh, California mayoral election in 2010. Uh, they went through 10 rounds of counting because they had uh, nine or 10 candidates. And by the time the ultimate winner is declared the majority winner, 12% of the electorate has been dropped out of the counting round by round because they didn't rank enough candidates. Then if you decide to take a look at what percent of the original electorate does the winner, the ultimate winner receive, often it's 45% of the beginning electorate. You see, as you take, if you discard ballots from the election, when you finally divine that 50.1% winner, it's not 50.1% of the original electorate. It's 51.1% of the ballots that remain in the vote counting pool. And, um, and so it's a different kind of majority uh, uh, that occurs. And, and finally, I'll, uh, we, we can go into more of the issues, but on the issue of voter choice, uh, it does give greater voter choice, but to really um, certain voters and not others, if you are a voter who prefers an independent or third party as your uh, vote as your vote of conscience on the first round, then yes, you get to vote a second, third, and fourth choice in this election. Um, but if you are a major party candidate uh, or you're a voter for uh, uh, a candidate who is a, maybe an incumbent or an establishment candidate, then you stick with that first round vote all the way through the round. So you aren't getting the extra choice. Mm -hmm. Now, having given the extra voter choice uh, to these third party and independent voters, you then take away some choice and you put all voters in a bit of a quandary because now you're asking voters to predict at the moment they cast their ballot, which two candidates are still going to be standing in an ultimate round. And a significant percentage of voters decide who they're going to vote for based on the matchups of the candidates. They need to know the identity of the candidates who are standing for their choice to make an informed vote. Uh, in that election. And so it's not, it, while it expands the choice of independent and third party candidates, it also has a deleterious effect on uh, the choices that people can make because they have to basically vote in the dark at the moment that they're voting and, and vote based on guesses on who is still going to be standing in the final round. I think you've uh, explained that very well. Um, I'm trying to keep up. But uh, if I restate your, uh, your observation, if there are 10 candidates in the extreme and I'm, let's say, uh, a, a less traditional or I don't uh, tow the party line, I'm looking for that more independent choice. And my, my rank is the least or the most independent to the most, let's say, conventional party member. Uh, I have to anticipate that my last two choices may be deciding the election rather than my first eight. Do I have that right? You do, but you risk somewhere between round 
two in eight, <laughs> you risk being exhausted because you, um, you didn't um, rank a viable candidate, one who is still standing, mm-hmm. soon enough on your ballot. And I saw this happen in Maine in 2018, where there were four candidates on the ballot. There was a Republican, there was a Democrat, the Republican was the incumbent. Uh, his name was Bruce Poliquin. And then you had two independent candidates. One was a basically an anti-Bruce Poliquin candidate. And the other one was a single-issue pro-marijuana candidate. And we were able to see the ballot impressions uh, uh, when we challenged the voting system there. And what you saw were you saw some of the independent voters vote for independent Smith in their first round, independent Jones in their second round, you see? Mm-hmm. And because they don't get to uh, the Republican or the Democrat candidates until the fourth round of voting. In other words, they waited too long to mark their ballot to for one of those major candidates. So yes, there's some residual latent support there, and it indicates the voter did want ultimately to express a preference for the Republican or Democrat, but because they voted it in the fourth round instead of the first, second, or third round, their ballots were discarded. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think strategically uh, and, 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 and very prudently about who's going to be standing in those subsequent rounds and in what round the election is going to be decided. Now, it's easier to discuss this, and many people think this through the paradigm of the standard election, where the major two candidates are a Republican and a Democrat. And most people figure, okay, the major party candidates are gonna be the two who remain standing in the final uh, result, and so, I ought to get around to expressing my preference for one of them in my second or third choice, right? Earlier rather than later. But in many elections, say a lot of local elections, people don't necessarily run as Republicans and Democrats. They often run, you know, as uh, uh, independents across the board, and you may have 10 candidates running for one office, one mayoral office, and, Uh, there it is harder often to predict who's going to be standing in the third, fourth round, even though you have 10 candidates. There's less polling data available for people to make informed judgments and those, you know, those predictions. Uh, And so we can't judge this uh, solely by uh, the ability to sort of guess that, well, it's going to come down to the Republican, the Democrat, so I'll save my vote there for the second or third round. Uh, so to be clear for our audience benefit, uh, there's no clear benefit to one party or another. This is not a partisan issue so that uh, if those uh, listeners are saying, I, you know, this is so complex, I, I can't understand uh, the detail, but which which way will my party benefit? Is, is there any clear uh, benefit to one side or another? Um, that highly depends on the state and the electorate where it's adopted. It can have a pro-Republican, anti-Republican, pro-Democratic, anti-Democratic effect at the polls. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And one state where I would say that occurred or has occurred would be the state of Maine because Maine has a competitive uh, Republican Party, although it's the minority party. But they also have a very strong independent contingent in their electorate. That's why Angus King uh, is a U.S. senator as an independent there. Um, now, um, in that state, Governor Paul LePage was elected the Republican governor of the state with 38 percent of the vote. And I think that by implementing um, uh, ranked choice voting in Maine, I think um, some people thought, well, this will put a ceiling on the Republicans' ability to get, uh, to get elected because there's a ceiling on the uh, Republican electorate in the state. And our uh, Democrats are losing only because viable, independent, third-party candidates are, are spoiling our, our votes. I think that effect is less pronounced in a state like California, which is largely a blue state, or a state like Massachusetts, which is largely a blue state. It has some Republican pockets, but by and large, I don't think you see a lot of spoiling occurring. When I looked at just your last round of, um, of uh, federal elections, you know, uh, Senator Warren won with over 60% of the vote. Uh, most of your congressional candidates, even with some third party candidates in the race, won with well over 58 or 60% of the vote. Um, you have a governor uh, who won the state with over 60% of the vote this time around. Um, and so, <clears throat> Uh, I think the choice in a blue, in a pretty solidly blue state that doesn't start with majoritarian problems and spoiler problems overall, like Massachusetts. Um, I think the principal democratic, uh, small d, democratic impact is to uh, elevate the significance and relevance of third parties and independent candidates who all of a sudden now have a greater voice in the election and the major party candidates have to take them uh, more seriously and curry favor with their support. Can I also ask though, that the claim that um, ranked choice voting might engender a sense of playing nice, that is to say, you wanna be everyone's first choice, but at the end of the day, you don't want to be so uh, negative in your campaigning that you alienate and potentially forfeit the second choice of your opponent's supporters. What do you say to, to those who say ranked choice encourage us to, uh, for lack of a better term, fight nicer? Well, uh, I think that's a mixed bag. Um, uh, in some circumstances, uh, yes. I, I would say that the major party candidates, um, or let's say the leader in a nonpartisan local election, uh, you might see the uh, leaders in an election playing nicer with the independent and third party candidates in order to appeal to their voters to be the, you know, to win the second choice. You're also likely to take up their issues. So if you have a pro-gun party or you have a pro-marijuana party uh, running, you, you might uh, get pulled to the polls, um, P-O-L-E-S, you know, you might get pulled more to the fringes to, um, uh, tell their support base that, uh, okay, I've adopted your position in my platform, so make me your second choice. 
But remember, the two major party candidates are still trying to make the other candidate uh, appear unappealing to the electorate at large, as well as to the third party and independent party supporters. Furthermore, um, we have seen in some cases the independent and third party candidates get in the race in order to be oppositional candidates. In other words, in Maine's Congressional District 2, there was one candidate whose cause, uh, whose cause was throwing out the incumbent congressman. And so her race was all negative about what's wrong with the incumbent. So I don't think we have seen uh, the end of negative campaigning. We've just seen the strategy around negative campaigning shifting uh, a bit. <clears throat> I read a thought piece of yours uh, where you did discuss this concept of transitive properties within voting. Uh, uh, you know, uh, can you develop that in a way that our listeners can understand? How uh, does where is it a principle in math? It doesn't apply necessarily to voting choice. Can can you flesh that out? Under ranked choice voting, um, let's uh, let's take. I'll tell you what. Uh, if you'll. Um, if you'll, um, if your listeners will will work with me on a Republican primary, okay? Mm -hmm. um, under the tr under the transitive principle of voting, if I see a, a, a ballot, uh, and let's take partisanship out of this ballot, just so that we remove partisanship as a binder of voter preference, right? Because most people think, listen, if if I prefer Trump over Biden and Biden over uh, the Green Party candidate, then clearly I prefer Trump over the Green Party candidate, right? This is easier to see in nonpartisan elections or in party primary elections, where you take that general uh, restriction on people's choice out of the equation. So under the transitive voting theory, if, I, if, if there are three candidates in the race, and I support Bush over Trump, okay? Mm -hmm. But I support Trump over Rubio, okay? Those are the three candidates in the race, Bush, Trump, and Rubio. Under the transitive voter uh, model, if I support Bush over Trump and Trump over Rubio, then naturally I support Bush over Rubio. Okay, that's the transitive voter. Okay. But the political science shows us that between and it depends on elections, depends on whether party binds voter choice, it depends on a lot of things. But even in uh, general elections with a Republican and Democrat, the political science shows that between five and 27% of voters in any given election actually have intransitive voter preferences. And it goes like this. If the matchup is Bush versus Trump, I support Bush. If the matchup is Trump versus Rubio, I support Trump. But if the matchup is Bush versus Rubio, guess what? I've just switched my ordering and I support Rubio. Now, on any given day, if you show up at a, uh, a primary election and the three candidates are Bush, Trump, and Rubio, and you're told, rank your preferences, 
And I happen to be in a group of five to 27% of voters in a given election who have that type of preference ordering. How do I mark my ballot? First off, I don't know who the top two are gonna be. How do I vote strategically? Because if I think, if I, if I have to guess, I think Trump Bush is gonna end up being in the final two. And I vote Bush, guess what? I'm stuck with Bush if he ends up in the final vote tally all the way through. Mm -hmm. But if the final vote tally ends up being Bush versus Rubio, guess what? I'm stuck with a vote for Bush, even though I prefer Rubio. And um, uh, so that's the notion of intransitive voting. And uh, ranked choice voting doesn't allow you to make that informed choice uh, in the final vote count. This is an important concept because another name for ranked choice voting is called instant runoff voting. Because what it does is it essentially affects a runoff election on the same election day as the general election day. And it collapses the runoff election onto one ballot and says, here's your opportunity to vote in the first election with a first choice and subsequent choices in what is effectively a runoff round. But in a standard runoff election, I'm told, here are the top two candidates who ended up to be your top two vote getters in the plurality election. Now you get to recalibrate your choice. In instant runoff voting, you don't get that knowledge. The ballot can't tell you who's going to be standing in that final election, and you're denied that choice. So for our listeners who are still keeping up, and I, I admire their uh, tenacity, uh, so let me uh, take a step back and focus our lens a little more broadly. If our, our listeners have uh, gotten a good grasp of the complexity and all the implications of ranked choice voting, uh, and they're going into the, the booth, now ranked choice voting is the, the law of the land. How will that affect who votes? Is this, uh, is this technology or this, this system uh, intimidating, confusing? Uh, is it apt to affect, I mean, our goal here, of course, is we want a, a more fair, a more uh, small d democratic result. Will it have an undemocratic effect if, if people are so confused or intimidated by the system that they may be reluctant to vote at all? Well, let's start with turnout. Uh, the political science is mixed on the degree to which ranked choice voting um, in, enhances or increases turnout. There are studies that go both ways. Uh, those, the proponents of ranked choice voting argue that as you elevate more relevant third party and independent candidacies, you will encourage uh, more voters who support them and would otherwise have been disenchanted with major uh, establishment candidates to turn out, they will now turn out knowing that they're not going to throw away their vote. Um, there are other studies that show uh, that compare jurisdictions and show that uh, ranked choice voting does not increase turnout. Um, and, um, the, you know, there's a study by David Kimball, one by a political scientist named Joseph Anthony, and another one by a political scientist named McDonald, all of whom say ranked choice voting has not improve democracy with greater turnout for that effect. Um, the proponents have some studies that they purport show that turnout is enhanced. The next issue you have to look at is while you're granting greater voter choice to independent and third party candidates, because they're the 
principal ones who take advantage of shifting their support, you know, in second and third rounds. Um, uh, the, uh, there is political science literature out there, and, 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 and a significant amount of it, that shows that older voters, for example, um, tend to uh, fail to uh, mark all of the columns on their ballot and tend to be disproportionately uh, discarded from the final rounds of vote count. Mm -hmm. There are studies out there that show that uh, because this is a complicated voting system, that sophisticated and higher educated voters tend to be advantaged because they are more informed uh, about candidates, about 10 candidates in a race, for example, and uh, more informed about how to strategically uh, vote their ballots uh, and how to exploit or use ranked choice voting to express all of their preferences. And there, uh, there uh, are some studies that indicate uh, that um, uh, African-American and Latino precincts have shown a statistically higher number or percentage of mismarked ballots uh, in, uh, in, in elections where ranked choice voting was used. And uh, that's, that's what uh, some of the political science shows. So um, we know that in uh, the body of uh, Voting Rights Act litigation generally, uh, we know that oftentimes the uh, uh, minority communities uh, uh, need uh, or ask for uh, enhanced uh, voting systems, uh, in part due to uh, the demographics uh, of those areas, and often uh, th that those uh, uh, disadvantages form a predicate for Voting Rights Act challenges. And uh, the ranked choice voting has never been held up to analysis under the uh, Federal Voting Rights Act. It's an issue that may be challenged in the future. So we're getting close to the end of our show. I, I want to um, you know, distill out from this very uh, deep and, and for, my, my, for my part, a complex uh, concept. Uh, describe for me, what, what's the profile of the candidate that will benefit most? And perhaps uh, by contrast, what's the profile of the candidate who might suffer from this? And, and I, I'll, I'll just say, I, I think you've made clear that uh, the further away you go from the mainstream, perhaps you, the more voice you might get, the more people may show up to, to, to vote for you because your vote, their vote isn't lost. Uh, and you will also get the attention perhaps of the dominant candidate because you want that dominant candidate wants your, him to be the second choice. But beyond that, what's, what's the profile? What do you think the impact will be? Well, it, uh, <clears throat> um, in 90, uh, the, the statistics show us that where ranked choice has been used, in 90% of the elections, the uh, candidate who received uh, the most votes in the first round of vote counting typically wins in the final vote count. So ranked choice voting doesn't, as a general rule, change election results. Um, in the 10% of elections where the number two uh, or the number three 
vote getter on the first round uh, receives more support as the rounds go by. Um, uh, and they ultimately win, they don't necessarily win with uh, a resounding majority support. And um, so who does it disadvantage overall? Probably establishment candidates and incumbents who might be held uh, to below 50%, you know, in that first round. Uh, and who does it enhance in that process? It probably enhances more than anyone else the, um, the independent uh, third-party candidates who have a greater say in the debate and get the, to leverage their issues into the debate. Um, and, um, but when that second place, when we're, again, I'm focusing solely now on the 10% of elections where the first round uh, vote getter doesn't ultimately win. And so the ultimate winner uh, is elected, even though they may have had significantly less support in the first round than the top first round vote getter. You, you do have questions about how strong their majoritarian support is, because as I mentioned earlier, they're still winning a plurality of the votes and they're getting to a majority only as ballots are discarded from the election. That is as ballots are exhausted and they are dropped from the electorate. And secondly, if you have that person win with, uh, let's say it was a you know, six, seven person, um, a candidate election, that person ends up winning with a lot of third, fourth, and fifth choice preferences. And that means it's highly diluted support at that point in time. I've heard someone say, oh, the tang is really uh, weak at that point. And so you do have to sort of question whether that person has the confidence of a majority of the voters, even though they were far behind as a first choice candidate and end up winning a plurality of the electorate with, uh, with uh, by virtue of the strength of fourth and fifth place preferences. And so who does that strengthen? It tends to strengthen the, uh, the um, third party and independent candidates having made them more relevant in the election. Uh, that leads us, uh, I think it's a good segue to our, my final question, which is ultimately um, a ballot question like this. We'll have to uh, have the scrutiny of the courts if it's challenged. Um, in your experience, and I know you, you have a, a multi-state perspective rather than just Massachusetts, uh, do you think this will pass muster with the Supreme just Judicial Court, knowing that uh, we define the winner of an election as the one who gets most votes? Uh, that, though, could be determined either the most first votes or the most overall votes. How do you see that playing out if this is a, this ballot measure is successful? Well, I don't know if there'll be a legal challenge, um, but uh, in Maine, let me start with what happened in Maine. In Maine, the constitution uh, provided for state and local offices election by plurality vote, and it was explicit. So after Maine voters adopted uh, ranked choice voting in a referendum, uh, the Supreme Court opined that you could not implement it in state and local elections unless you change the constitutional provision on plurality voting. <clears throat> in 
in um, in Massachusetts, there is a constitutional provision in the amendments article for the uh, 14 that you mentioned that provides that the person having the highest number of votes shall be deemed and declared to be elected. Now, in a 1941 Massachusetts Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court uh, observed that provision and said that it was enacted in the 1800s uh, with the intent to institute plurality elections and to prohibit a requirement of absolute majority. So um, that's not as explicit as the main constitution, but there you have it. There will be uh, an open legal question in Massachusetts over whether this voting system violates uh, Article 14. Uh, beyond that, as I mentioned, um, whether or not ranked choice voting has a discriminatory impact on certain demographics of voters uh, has never been resolved by a court. Uh, there needs to be more evidence developed, but there are studies giving kernels of evidence on that already uh, and suggesting that there may be a disparate impact on minority uh, voters. Um, and then uh, while uh, the main court uh, rejected the arguments, um, you know, you might still see legal challenges to uh, other constitutional aspects of ranked choice voting in Massachusetts, particularly whether or not it violates the Equal Protection Clause um, or the Due Process Clause. Um, and uh, the federal district court in Maine has rejected those arguments. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit uh, did not reach the merits, but did indicate sympathy with that district court of Maine uh, decision. And yet you have U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit uh, has highlighted some of these choice problems that I discussed, the intransitive voter problem, for example, and said that is an open issue. So there, there may be grounds to challenge the law. Uh, I think that if there is, the, the strongest uh, point would be the whether or not it's constitutional under the Massachusetts Constitution, which is an open question. Well, that was a, a very complete answer, uh, and you've been a fantastic guest to uh, talk about the nuances and the details of ranked choice voting. Uh, we'll leave it to our listeners to decide if it's something they prefer, um, but you've definitely offered a lot of information for us to, uh, to think about. So thank you very much for being a guest on Hubwonk. I appreciate your timely. My pleasure. Thank you, Joe. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are three ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can offer a review, or you can share it with friends. We also appreciate if you want to subscribe to the show, where each Tuesday at 11, the new episode is automatically downloaded. If you have questions for me, or you've got suggestions about future show topics, you can contact me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.